Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I imagine that a number of you are familiar with the 19th century American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's probably best known for his epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, as well as the poem, Paul Revere's Ride, which has really shaped our imagination about that event. But he also wrote a poem on Christmas Day of 1863. It would be called Christmas Bells. But eventually it was put to music, and it is now the song that some of us sing during this season called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it's a song that deals with the tension of the joy of the season, the joy, the atmosphere of Christmas, as well as acknowledging that life is hard and life is difficult. And for his own story, you know, Longfellow during this season was going through just really bouts of grief. He was mourning the death of his wife, Frances, just a few years before in 1861. She was sealing envelopes with hot wax when her dress caught fire. And he woke from a nap attempting to put her out, but she was too severely burned and she died the next day. Well, Longfellow himself had some burns as well and he was in such bad shape he wasn't able to attend her funeral in the days to come. And from there on he would grow uh, a beard that would become his trademark in order to cover his burn scars. But then later, early in 1863, his oldest son, Charlie, um, signed up for the, uh, to, uh, as a part of the Union effort in the American Civil War. But he did so without his father's permission and blessing. Although Longfellow was an abolitionist, he didn't you know, volunteer his son for the effort, so but Charlie went anyway. But then on December 1st of 1863, Longfellow got a telegram while he was eating dinner that informed him his son 
had been shot. But fortunately, Charlie survived the shot. He was shot through the left shoulder, but the bullet nicked his spine. He was less than an inch away from being permanently paralyzed. So Longfellow goes and retrieves his son in order to nurse him back to health, back to health uh, at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But while all this is going on, during this season and, and on Christmas Day, Longfellow writes this poem, and he's reflecting on the war, reflecting on the cannons of the South. And in the next to last stanza, he writes this. He says, And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Usually not the sentiment you usually hear in Christmas songs, right? But he doesn't end it like that. The last stanza, the stanza right after this one, he says, but then the bells pealed loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. In spite of the circumstances and in spite of how hard life felt sometimes, he, he held on to some hope. He held on to a hope that, a confidence that peace would win the day. Well, what reason did he have to believe that peace would win the day? Well, we'll talk about that as we go forward. But first, what comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? Is it an absence of conflict? Is it the end of a war? Or do you think of a calmness, a, a quietness? Maybe you grew up in the 70s and you listened to the Eagles and you had a peaceful, easy feeling. Now, some of these things, of course, do have to do with peace, but the Bible's word for peace in the Old Testament, it's the word shalom. And peace certainly encompasses those things, but it's even more. Uh, a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga describes shalom this way. She says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully enjoyed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Everything functioning, everything flourishing, everything as it was meant to be, everything in order. It's a beautiful word, it's a beautiful vision. But as we continue to consider shalom, we have to go back to the beginning. And I like to borrow a diagram from my friend, uh, Jason Zastro, and I intended to do it on the iPad on the screen today, but there is no shalom today between the uh, iPad and the cords and whatever's going on here. So we're going old school with the whiteboard. So in creation, we can think about it, there's God, there's humanity, and then, of course, there's creation. And God made and loves and provides for humanity, 
and humanity loves and worships God. And God made and provides for and loves creation. And according to the Bible, creation worships God. Creation worships God by being what it is. Mountains worship by being mountains. Trees worship by being trees. Squirrels worship by being squirrels. And by climbing straight up houses like they're Spider-Man and chasing each other. I really like the squirrels in my neighborhood. But there's also a relationship, of course, between humanity and creation. Humanity was to represent God's rule to creation. Uh, humanity was to reflect God's goodness, God's love, God's wisdom, his creativity, his care out into creation. And creation was to respond to humanity. Creation was to cooperate with humanity, to yield its strength to humanity. And in a sense, with humanity being, of course, the image of God, the, the selim of God, or if you could think of it as the statue of God, there's a sense creation bows to humanity in reference to God. Creation worships God by bowing, in a sense, to God's statue, which is humanity. And so here we have a state, everything as it was made to be, everything flourishing, everything functioning. Do we have a word that can describe this condition. Why don't we call this shalom? Here we have a state of shalom, everything as it was made to be. Well, we know how that goes, right? We know how the story goes. Does shalom stay long? We get like two pages of it. But then what happens is that whole thing with the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit, and humanity taking it. But this is far more than humanity breaking some rule that God gave them arbitrarily because he felt like it. The question behind this choice was, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to accept as authority in your life? And what humanity did is that they rejected the vocation that God gave them as ones who reflect him to creation. So as a result, we have a rift in the relationship between humanity and God and a rift between the relationship between humanity and creation. There's a reason that your lawnmower does not start the first time every time. And we now live in a world that we have this sense of scarcity. God tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall produce for you. We have this sense of scarcity, and that causes anxiety to us, and that causes us to overwork. In fact, nations go to war and competition for the scarce resources. And so what we have here in the brokenness of these relationships is a sense of the brokenness of shalom. Shalom is broken. Paul, in the New Testament, goes on to describe the human condition in a well-known passage in Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, 
they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So let's think about this, what we have here. How, was, how were things supposed to go? According to Shalom, according to how God ordered things, creation was meant to bow, to serve, to be subservient to the image of God, humanity. But according to Romans 1, what's happening? Is humanity worshiping God? No. What is humanity bowing to? Images. Images of what? Images of mortal man, yes, but also the birds of the heavens, the four-footed creatures, the livestock, the stuff that they were meant to rule over. So the intent was creation would bow to humanity in reference to God, but what's happening is humanity is bowing to images of creation in reference to what isn't God. So the lesson we can learn here is disordered worship leads to a disordered world. There is no shalom. But let's consider another project of God's that develops through the story. This time, we have God, Israel, and the nations. God entered a covenant relationship with Israel, but for the purpose, for the purpose of them representing him to where? To the nations. Israel was made to represent and reflect the goodness and the wisdom and the care of God out to the nations, but they were to do so in, uh, in the context of a covenant with God, and this meant they needed to live according to the terms of the covenant. So God says to them in Deuteronomy 28, he says, look, if you, if you live according to the terms of the covenant, your wombs will be fruitful, your livestock will thrive, your harvest will be plentiful, you'll be safe from your enemies. What does it sound like God's describing to them here? It sounds like a piece of Shalom. Well, how's that go? Does Israel reflect God to the nations so that all the nations come to, to know God? That was the goal, right? Does Israel reflect God to the nations? Well, that's, this is the, basically the long story of the Old Testament, what actually happens. Instead of Israel reflecting God to the nations, Israel chases after the gods of the nations. They do the whole Romans one thing, bowing to the statues of the gods, the gods of the nations. And what is the result? Their foolish hearts were darkened. 
It's as, 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 as it says in Isaiah 9, the people walked in darkness. Well, let's think about darkness for a second. Anyone who's, and of course, once again, let's go back to the beginning. Anyone who's cracked open a Bible, most, most people know Genesis 1-1, right? How's it start? In the beginning, what happens? God creates the heavens and the earth. What's verse 2? Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So here we have this world that's formless and void. It's shapeless and empty. It's not quite brought to order yet. You see, creation isn't just God bringing something out of nothing. It's God bringing order to disorder, order to chaos. And darkness and the deep and water in the ancient world, these were symbols of chaos. Well, how does God begin to establish order and establish this idea of shalom? What does he do first? He says, let there be light. So as the people walked in darkness in Isaiah 9, what happens? God says, let there be light. Behold, the people have seen a great light. And this light, of course, is connected with the birth of this child. This is one of three times that Isaiah prophesies about the, the birth of a child. He does so one other time, and he says the child will be called Emmanuel. We'll talk about that more on Christmas Eve. But this child, who we, we presume to be the same as Emmanuel, is called what we've been talking about over the last three weeks. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and today he is the Prince of Peace. As Aaron said, he is Sar Shalom, the Prince of Shalom. And and so it talks about all these great things that this Prince of Shalom, there, there will be this, this greatness of his government and there, there will be this peace and this shalom without end. But if we think just for a little bit about it, it we might sense this tension. And that tension is that, well, if we believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he is the one who would bring shalom and he came 2,000 years ago. Well, today, as I look out into the world, there's still conflict. There's still violence. There's still war. We're living in, in a pandemic. Governments are making terrible decisions, and the government's supposed to be on his shoulders? This doesn't feel like shalom. So how do we handle that tension? Well, we may be helped if we consider what theologians call prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening is this idea that the, the prophets had a, the, a vantage point of what, what was multiple events, but it looked like they were clustered together. There wasn't, uh, it, it seemed like it was all in one package, although there was distance in between them. And of course, the classic illustration for this is, is mountains, Right? You could be driving along and, and you could be seeing what looks like this one close cluster uh, and neighborhood of mountains, and especially if you're driving out west. But, the, but as you drive through them and the road winds between them, you realize, oh, 
these mountains aren't so close together. There are miles of valley in between them. I heard a story of a man who went uh, hiking in the mountains with a friend, and they got to the top of a mountain, and the man said, well, what? how about we uh, have lunch on that mountain over there and then dinner on that mountain over there? And his friend said, well, we could, but the problem is that first mountain is 40 miles away and the other one's 100. Something about the mountains messes with our depth perception. But that, and that, so, that, so that is with the prophets, with foreshortening. They, so Isaiah could see this whole package of the Messiah and what his eventual work would be, but didn't realize that it would be another 700 years before Messiah would come and at least another 2,000 before peace was fully you know, brought back. And so this is a way that we today as Christians can relate to um, the, the Jewish people before Jesus came, right? Because they're waiting for years and years. They're waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for his first advent. And during this season of advent, we now can relate because we're waiting for him to come again, not as a baby, but as the victorious king who will fully restore shalom. It's been God's whole goal in redemption since the beginning is to restore shalom, the shalom of his good creation. That's the whole goal. And if shalom is about the setting right of this physical world, you could argue that God's already begun that. He's already started it. How? Through the risen body of Jesus. You see, what is the cause and effect of broken shalom? The cause is sin. The result, the effect, is death. And Jesus came taking sin upon himself in order to take it to the grave and defeat its power. And he rose alive from the grave on the third day, overcoming the effect of broken shalom, death. So through dying and rising, Jesus begins to glue back the shattered pieces of the broken shalom. And that's already, that's, that's, that's already something that has happened. And so, look, I, and so Shalom, the restoration of Shalom is about this physical world being set right. And that's already begun because the body of Jesus that was part of this physical world has already been set right. It's the first of many setting rights to come. And I say this to people sometimes, it's people who have been Christians for years, and sometimes their eyebrows raise or they look confused and they say, is that right? But it's, it, it's this, is that today, right now, today, Jesus is a man in a human body. Jesus today is a man in a resurrected human body. Right now, he's physical. Because the incarnation was not Jesus would come to borrow an earth suit, <laughs> come to borrow a human body for 30-some years before then moving on and becoming some sort of spiritual, disembodied spiritual being. But no, right now, today, Jesus is a man in a physical body. What that means is our hope, our hope for eternity, our hope that we will end well is not in some abstract theory or idea or philosophy, or it's not this ethereal. Our hope is, our hope is a solid body. 
Our hope is a solid body. I mean, can you get your head around that? Right now, in the heavenly places, is a human body. Right now, a human being is a member of the Trinity. And we can have that incredible hope that no matter what happens in this life, our ending is happily ever after. We live forever in a state of shalom. And when you can be assured of that, you know what you get? Peace. Peace. Um, I think I heard this from our friend uh, Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon was uh, an interim preacher here at Apex before Mike came. He's a uh, professor at Cedarville. I think I heard this from him. If I'm wrong, it's still a good illustration. But I think I heard him say that he likes football. Uh, he tends to root for Ohio State, but he, he can't watch the games live. He can't watch the games as they're happening. It's, it makes him too anxious. It's too nerve-wracking for him. So he waits to hear whether or not they won before he decides to watch the game. Which is, I'm sure, is not how most of us are going to do it. But imagine how calm he is and how much peace he'll have watching the game. Our quarterback throws an interception, big deal. The other team scores a touchdown, so what? The other team's fans are cheering, oh, let them have their moment. I know how this ends. And when you know how the story ends, you can have peace. It means all, the, all your fears, all your challenges, all your trauma in light of eternity is like a quarterback throwing an interception in a game that your team wins by 50. I'm not saying that those are not significant, that we don't feel the weight of those because we absolutely do. But Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. When we can get our head around that, we can, we can get a hold of that, we can have all sorts of hope, and in that, we can also have peace. Internal calm, internal shalom, confidence in God. And that is where the big picture intersects with the small picture, where the big story of shalom interacts with our own lives. Because you see, what is, what is the opposite of shalom? Well, it's chaos. It's disorder. How do we usually experience chaos and disorder in our lives? As anxiety. The opposite of peace is anxiety. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. We don't have peace because we're anxious. And in the Bible, the, the word anxious in the New Testament shares a root with the word that's it's about being torn into pieces, being divided. So 
in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus says, don't worry, don't be anxious about what you'll eat or what you will wear. Look at the birds, look at the grass. God takes care of them. He'll take care of you too. So don't be anxious. Don't be torn up. Don't be divided. The reason we're anxious is that we're divided. We're trying to live in two kingdoms at the same time. God's kingdom and our own. And we're anxious. We don't experience peace because things are not done in our kingdom by our will. And so we get anxious. And we start to think. We start to have these questions. We start to have these doubts. Maybe God really doesn't know what he's doing. And so we hire our inner lawyer to go and try to give God some advice. Because we are the wonderful counselor. Here's how things, you know, here's how you could order some things here. We also may doubt that God has any capability. You know, maybe God pulled some strings in the, the miracles of the Bible, but it doesn't seem like he works like that in my life. So I'm going to use my own strength, my own means, and, and my own understanding of things to, you know, have peace and get what I need. It may also be that we wonder whether or not God actually cares. You know, maybe God is busy, you know, hearing the prayers of the important people who somehow figured out a way to get on his nice list. But I'm on the naughty list. You know, God doesn't really, God's indifferent. He doesn't see what happens in my life. Well, what, we, can, we, what can we do about these doubts? How can we address those? Well, let's consider what Isaiah would say about that in accordance to um, these names that we've been talking about of this, of this child to be born. And so I'll abbreviate here, but how do we have peace considering that Jesus is the wonderful counselor or the mighty God or the everlasting Father? Well, let's consider the characteristics of each of these. What sort of characteristic does a wonderful counselor have? I would argue that a wonderful counselor is wise. Yeah? So we have wisdom. I don't know anyone who's ever said the sentence, that person gives good counsel, but I'm not sure they're really wise. Wisdom kind of goes along with the territory of being a wonderful counselor. Mighty God, the characteristic that comes to mind is power. I think that's pretty uh, apparent, pretty evident. What about Everlasting Father? Here with Everlasting Father, we're, we're not talking about Jesus' role in the Trinity Jesus is united with the Father, but he's also distinct from the Father. We're not, um, we don't believe in modalism. You can Google that later if you need. <laughs> but as king, in Jesus' role as king, he is like a father. He is provider and protector. And, and what is a good father like? Well, a good father is, is loving. And a good father cares, Right? When a small child comes 
with anxiety to mom and dad's bedroom in the middle of the night because they had a bad dream, good father doesn't just simply turn the child away. He takes that, father, he takes that child in his arms and, and says, it was just a dream. What is real is that you are with me now, you're in my arms, and you are safe. Now, we need to believe in all of these things in order to have peace. Two out of three is not enough. Let's think that through. Say that you have somebody and and your life is in their hands and they have wisdom, they have power, but they don't really care, they don't love you. Can you have peace? No. A judge can be wise and powerful, but if the judge doesn't care you, you have no reason to have peace. Your enemies can be wise and powerful. Well, let's say this time that this person is wise, they do love you, they do care, but they don't have power. Can you have peace then? It's, well, I, I know what should happen in your life, and I, and I care about you, but I just can't do anything for you. I can't help you. I'm incapable. Can you have peace in that kind of person? I don't think so. Where else could you look for help? But now, let's say that the person has power, the person does love you, does care about you, but they're not wise. Can you have peace then? Still no. Because it might be that the person is capable and the person cares enough to do it, but they don't actually know what's best for you. The, The illustration for this I think of is many times people in first world countries want to help through charity to people with third world countries. So we have the ability to help and to give charity and we love you and we care enough to do it, but they don't always have wise ways of doing it. And we can end up doing more harm than good through our best intentions. The other example is for years, Americans sent secondhand clothing over to places like Kenya. We've done it. We've, we've clothed the Kenyans. That's great, right? Well, You also put the Kenyan textile industry out of business. So we need someone who's not only powerful and loving, but also has the wisdom, has the wisdom to not get us out of the thing that is eventually making us who we are, that is shaping us and giving us strength. So here's some visuals to help you. God is not in his heaven, lacking the wisdom, looking at your life, going, scratching his head, thinking, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And God is not in his heavens, powerless, looking at your life, wringing his hands, thinking, oh, if only, if only there was something I could do. If only there was someone powerful enough to help. And God is not in his heavens, indifferent, with his arms folded, looking at your life and thinking, well, they're just going to have to deal with that. 
I think the posture that we can think of that Jesus has in this moment is one of an extended hand. One saying to you, I've been where you've been. I've walked where you've walked. I know that life hurts. But I know what the trail is. I have the wisdom and I know how to walk it. Take my hand and let's walk together. And Jesus says, don't doubt my power. I have a powerful hand. I won't let you out of it. This hand is the same hand that grabbed the hand of a 12-year-old dead girl. And as I grabbed her hand, I said to her, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. And she did. Because when I have you by the hand, death is only sleep. That's the kind of power that's in my hand. And if you ever question whether I care about you, whether I love you, whether or not I have your best in mind, I do. And I have the scars to prove it. Can you find peace in the scars of Jesus? Because his scars mean that he was broken so that you could have wholeness, so that you could have shalom. He was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, chastime, the chastisement that was on him brought us peace, shalom. And by his wounds, we are healed. Who said that? Isaiah. So, Jesus gave us something to remember that, to remember his wisdom, to remember his power, and to remember his care. And he gave that as something that we can touch and something that we can taste. God said to Adam after the fall, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. But this is not bread that we eat through our own toil. This is not bread that we eat through the sweat of our brows. This is bread that we have because of Jesus' toil. Because of the one who wore the thorns on his brow. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave it to his disciples, divided it among them and said, this is my body broken for you, broken to put shalom back together. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, with the cup, here we have the fruit of the vine, which represents blood, the blood of Christ. And the Bible tells us that blood represents life. 
When Adam and Eve took their hand, extended their hands and took the fruit, it led to their death. But through this fruit, this is something that points to what gave us life. The blood of Jesus poured out for us. So Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, perhaps there's a way for us to continue to respond. Perhaps you are here and you're recognizing you need peace. You need a sense of peace, a sense of the peace that will be full and will one day come at Jesus' second advent. But in the meantime, between now and then, you're divided. You're living in two kingdoms. You have anxiety about your marriage, anxiety as a parent, anxiety in your family, anxiety about work, anxiety in your finances, anxiety in your health. Life isn't going according to how you think it should. But you realize you need again to recognize, not just in your head, you need it to connect to your heart that God is wise. Jesus is wise, Jesus is powerful, and Jesus cares. And you need a real sense of that. You want a sense of his hand in your hand today. We invite you to come forward to pray. And these middle carpets, these three carpets in the middle, those are for people who want to come and pray, and you don't mind if someone comes alongside you and, and prays with you. And for people who are praying with someone, we ask Ask their permission to put a hand on their shoulder. Ask their name and ask how you can pray for them. But perhaps you want to come and, and you just need to do business with God and you really, today, you just don't want someone to come along and pray with you. Those are the carpets on the outside, the smaller carpets on the edges. But we invite you to come in to pray too. So I'm going to pray and as the band plays, we invite you to come. If you just need a sense of peace, in this time, you may have holiday stress, more presents to buy, more presents to wrap, parties to throw, things to cook, and you're a bit anxious. It's a bit odd to be anxious during a celebration of a Prince of Peace, isn't it? Let that wash over you. So if you want a sense of peace today, come forward, invite God to speak into those cracks in your heart.